This is the MysticScribblers.com podcast with Ray Carriger and Deb Lawback. We believe the doorway to true love and romance is found through the discovery of your past lives. Hey, this is Ray and Deb, and we're in sunny Florida. We are the authors of the Twisted series, which some of you who have gone to our website are familiar with. And we're really interested in past lives, which is what our love story is based on and our own personal beliefs. Today, my writing partner, Deb, and her mom, Sharon, are joining us to talk about her experiences in, with past lives. And if you've caught our other podcast, you know a little bit about Deb and I. So I'm going to turn it over to Deb for just a few minutes. Talk about your mom. My mother is someone who I care for very deeply. She is uh, a best friend. She is very loving and has gentle authority. She's had some very cool experiences that she's shared with me throughout our lives together, and now we get the opportunity to share them with more people. I'm glad that anyone here is checking in to hear this. What a cool story she has to share. Hi, this Hello. is Sharon. Hi. 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 Hi, sweetie. Hi, Mom. Thanks for joining us today. We wanted to talk. I wanted to have you say hi to Ray. Hi, and Ray. Hi. Tell so us a little it, bit about you so our readers know okay. that you're like a real person and not somebody we just dug up out of the <laughs> Yeah, I'm a real person. Well, I was born in a small town called St. Augustine, Florida, which is supposed to be the oldest city in the United States. And it was a beautiful city. I was born and raised during the 50s. Well, of course, I was born a little bit before the 50s. (laughs) 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 But anyway, um, it was a wonderful life. I I had a mother and father that were loving. And I had three younger brothers. I was the firstborn. So I was always sort of the star because I was the only girl. Um, My dad and I were very close, and my mom, too, but um, my mom, I never wanted another mother, but my dad and I were just super-duper close, and um, we we always had this special bond between us, so... um, You remember a moment with him from your childhood that was so special? Yeah, um, well, we used to go outside, and he'd show me the stars and give me the different star names and and all of that, which was, yeah, constellations and everything, and it was really, really interesting, and that I was impressed that he knew so much, and at that time, we were raised Catholic. We were all Catholic. So we went to church, of course, every Sunday, and we did all the other things that are supposed to go with it. But um, my dad was very knowledgeable, and he did belong to the Knights of Columbus, which is sort of like the Masons, but it's the Catholic side of it. And I think he had a lot of knowledge from that. But he used to tell me just you know, look at the trees around you, look at the ocean, look at the grass that's growing. 
could you do that? And I'd say, can I do it? No, not without something to start with. And he said, exactly. So if you ever, ever doubt that there's a supreme being, which is what he called uh, God, he said, if you ever, you know, have a doubt, you, you must come outside and look at the nature because there's nothing we could do uh, with a bare hand to make that tree or to make a ba- blade of grass or to make a flower or to have the ocean roar. We couldn't do any of that. But the Supreme Being has given this to us as a gift, and we're here to take care of it and appreciate it. And those are kind of the things that he would tell me. Another time we would, we're coming back one time from a trip that we, or we were going actually to Indiana, which is uh, Clear Lake, Indiana, we were going to visit my grandparents who had a cottage there on the lake. And we were going through the Smoky Mountains, and we, there was an accident. It was only a two-lane highway. So we were backed up and backed up for a long time. And there comes this old lady wearing a hat. I mean, she was dressed like she was out of the 1800s. And a little boy, probably my age, maybe 10, and the little girl must have been seven, maybe, and he was smoking a cigarette. They had no shoes on. The grandmother had the gray hair with the bun in the back and the head, you know, like a sun hat thing on, and she was smoking a corncob pipe. The two kids were... (laughs) Really, and they were filthy dirty. I mean, you could see the holes in the shorts and the T-shirts, and just like they hadn't had a bath or brushed their hair in a week. So I I was just dumbfounded, and my dad told me, he said, look, um, they are probably very happy because they don't know anything different. But see, you got to look behind you to find that there's other people in worse shape than you. If you think you don't have enough clothes in the car to last you for three months at the lake, then that's a problem, you know. But these kids probably wear the same clothes all the time, and and they don't look like they're unhappy, but they don't know any better. But that was just a lesson to say, if you don't think you're happy, look behind you. There's always someone in worse shape or in a different condition that's even worse than yours. So to be thankful and happy for what you have, no matter how little or how big it is. I remember you telling me that, and I'm glad you brought that up. I think it's a a neat. Yeah, that was a really neat story. He, He always brought things up like that whenever there was an opportunity for a lesson because the way he said it, though, was never a lesson like a teacher telling you, you've got to learn this. It was always it just, you know, right on at the right time and in the right frame of mind. And and everybody, even my brothers, were quiet listening, you know, and watching. And maybe it even sunk in on them, even they were younger than me. But I'll never forget those things because it, it's true. And the older I got, the more I recognized that. And it must have made an impression because I couldn't have been more than 12, maybe 10, 12 years old. He had the most gorgeous blue eyes. They were very bright and and electrifying eyes. 
He had wow. a smile that just lit up the whole room. And he had dimples on either side of his cheeks when he smiled. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm sitting here with two beautiful blue-eyed men, and they're both smiling, and they have dimples, <laughs> and it's pretty cool to hear that, Mom. Yeah. Was he tall? Yes, he was six foot tall. He wow. was um, broad-shouldered, and he had a real nice voice, very uh, uh, manly voice, you know, and it wasn't raspy or anything like that. It was just a very clear manly voice and he was a great father that's all I can say and I know he loved my mother to the point of ridiculousness and to the point of where they loved each other so much it had that love-hate relationship you know and I don't think it was hate I think it was just jealousy because they were both such attractive people and um, it was very difficult Yeah, for both of them. And, of course, remember, they got married in November of of 1941, and the minute he got back from his honeymoon, he had the the, uh, draft papers were waiting for him, but he went down and enlisted in the Army like he never got the papers. (laughs) So, yes, he went in as a sergeant. He's proud of that, right? Yeah, he's very proud, and I'm proud of it. He went over to the Philippines, so that's where he spent most of his times and, you know, took back the islands from the Japanese and different things. It was, I I wish my uncle were still alive because he knew more about the names of the islands. In fact, I guess he was in the first wave that that got one of the islands back from the Japanese, and it was a big deal. At the end of the war, um, he was sent back. You know, and he was asked to stay on, but he didn't want to. Um, he he took a test, and he got 98% on it, and they wanted him to stay in the Army because he was by then a master sergeant. He was a uh, flamethrower. Um, he had learned all that, and he was attached to the Marines. So, as oh. I said, they landed. That's why they landed, and he was there um, because of the Marines. And they did the flamethrowing. He told me several stories about that, too, how the Japanese would, uh, they would go out first and put down the the lines of where they were going to do the flamethrower. And once they do that, then these lines catch on fire, which goes all the way around where the, you know, the army of the Japanese would be. And they were so quiet during the evening that they could bring the lines back without us even knowing it. And he said on several occasions, uh, he knew they were like that. And he said, we would have to go check, be sure they weren't on top of us because we could have killed ourselves, you know, if we lit off the flame. So then when he came back in 1945, uh, still married to Helen Christie. Right. They were, they, they came out of Fort Wayne, Indiana, but, um, they decided after he came back that they were going to move to St. Augustine, which is where one of my mother's aunt and uncles lived. So they thought it would be best to, you know, to try to start a new life in Florida. And my dad always loved Florida because when he came out of high school, he came down to Florida, hitchhiked all the way with one of his buddies, and then went to Miami and got on a banana boat, believe it or not, from 
here to Cuba, you know, from Miami to Cuba, worked the banana boat coming back and everything. And he just loved that area. And he loved Cubans, too, because he had gone over there. Do you think that's why you married a Cuban? I don't know. You know, I really don't know. I just remember being a kid and loving the I Love Lucy show where I was watching (laughs) Ricky Ricardo. Ricky Ricardo. And, and, and then he married his clone. His clone, yeah, because they laugh the same and they're the, they kind of look the same with that wavy dark hair and dark eyes, you know, and explosive temper, you know, the whole nine yards. And I always said, oh, I want to marry Ricky Ricard. And I had to be eight years old, you know. And um, so that's that's basically, you know, my Ricky Ricardo story. I do. I did get him. Got <laughs> him. I did meet him. Yeah. So which, it was all it was all meant to be. Which brings us to your story, how it, your father passed. Um, I was seventeen, and um, yeah, I just turned seventeen in September, and this was in December, and I. Um, had noticed my dad was acting a little funny, but he'd always had, he had heart problems. And his first heart attack was in 1961. And from that point on, he had, he had the first heart attack and then he had two more heart attacks after that over the years. And um, now it was 1965 and I was a senior in high school. And my father was not real happy with my boyfriend at the time. He didn't really like him. He thought I could do better. Of course, most parents do think that when you're that young. And um, my boyfriend had come over that day, December 30th. He'd come over that day to tell and brag and just went on and on about he got a 4F so he didn't have to go to Vietnam. And I said, how did you get a 4F? There's nothing wrong with you. And he said, oh, no, I have asthma. And I said, you don't have asthma. He said, well, I did as a baby, and the doctor apparently, you know, lied on the form. And so he got a 4F, and he wasn't going to go to the war. Well, my dad about went through the roof. Um, Of course, being a veteran, you know, and very patriotic on top of all that, he Mm -hmm. just thought that was awful. And... He didn't say much to him at the time, Uh, and David didn't stay very long. That was his name. He didn't stay very long, and he left. And then my father lit in on me about, how could you go with somebody that has no respect for this country, doesn't want to fight for this country, you know, on and on. And I said, well, Dad, it's a different war, you know, than World War II. I said, this is different, and um, I, I don't want... I wouldn't want my brothers to go or, or anybody else that I know to go. But I understand your point, but he just kept coming after me. And he said, but it was the way that he he made himself so, oh, this is grand. I don't have to go. You know, I got this fake 4F type thing. And so I just kept saying, don't talk to me anymore about it. Leave me alone about it. And I went to my room, but he followed me. And then we had this big fight. And he had his heart attack and then he fell back from me and said, look what you've done to me. That was my last, the last words I heard from him. And he staggered out of my room into the living room and 
fell into the recliner there, and but then fell out of it underneath our Christmas tree and died. Well, I was hysterical. Um, my mother, hysterical, everybody. Um, she called the paramedics. They came and they worked on him while he was at the house. And they took him in the ambulance and my mom went with them. And so that's you know, that was a very rough time. I'm praying. I'm doing everything in my life to, you know, say, whatever you do, God, don't let my father die, that kind of thing. But I already done that four or five times before. And I even promised to be a nun, you know. I said, I'll be a nun if you let my father live and all this stuff. That's how kids think. But anyway, uh, my mom and the doctor came back real quick and he took me to the kitchen. We had an eat-in kitchen and set me down and said, well, Sharon, I'm sorry, but we tried everything. And he didn't make it to the hospital even. Um, and I just went nuts. I mean, I really went hysterical. So they took me to my room. He gave me a shot, and I went out like a light. That's the last thing I remember that night until the next day. But that leads me to tell you how hard it was for me to think that I was the cause of his death. So I had to talk to the doctor several times, and they all told me it was going to happen anyway, and it wasn't your fault, and if it wasn't that day, it would have been another day for another reason with somebody else or nobody else. You know, it just would have happened. And of course, I didn't believe that um, for many years, but uh, I was still living at home and going to school when I had my first dream, and um, my dad came to me in this dream, and we were outside, you know, sitting on a picnic table type thing, and I told him, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to push you. He said, it's okay, it was in the plan. It's all in the plan, and I said, well, I didn't mean to, and he said, I'm not mad at you. It's okay. Everything's fine, you know, and I was like, what? You know, that's not normal, <laughs> you know, and so we just, you know, talked. I mean, we talked and talked, and I can't even tell you what it was, but I can say this much, that when I would go to sleep at night, and I had something on my mind that I couldn't understand or know exactly which direction to go or what I should do next about something, no matter what it was, and no matter how big or small it was, it was always big in my mind, and he would come to me in the dream, and we would talk, and the next morning I'd wake up and I'd know exactly what I was supposed to do. Okay, so I'm going to do this first and then that. And it always would work out. But before, in my mind, I was, like, hesitant. I didn't know which way to go. But after so you felt encounter, he was visiting you in your dreams yes. and, and yes. there was no doubt in your mind you were oh, spending no. time but, with him on yeah, a spiritual it, level. Yeah. It was, in my mind, I, I first it, at first I thought of him as dreams, but then it was too real to be the dream that most most dreams have a little quirky stuff in it, you know? Right. But, yeah, I mean, you know it's a dream, and you're dreaming it, and it's quirky, and yet it's real. But this one, it was so calming and so real, like as if we were just sitting right there. I could see the blue sky if it was daytime. I could see the park if that's where we were. And uh, I... 
learned after a while that I noticed that he would always, you know, say, well, it's time for me to go. And I'd say, always say, no, don't go. You can stay, you know, you don't have to go. And then he'd say, well, honey, I will be back. But you see, I can only visit you between sun up and sundown or sundown and sun up. And I said, really? I didn't know that. And he said, yeah, now it's time for the sun to come down. It's going down, and I've got to leave, but I'll be back. And I'd say, okay, okay. And I'd always, you know, do this little thing about, well, really, do you have to go? That kind of thing, like a kid. But eventually, you know, eventually I got used to that. And um, How old were you at this point when you were still having the dreams? Oh, I was 17 when they started. And they continued on till I was 27. So for and 10 years, then, you had dreams yeah. of your father, and they uh-huh. weren't dreams. They were actual encounters. Actual encounters. Oh, no. They weren't dreams, no. Um, right. They were real. So I was concerned about him meeting your father. My husband at the time was like, you know, everything was good, and we were happy, Um but I always, in my dreams with my dad before he would leave, I would say, can't you stay just a little longer because Caesar will be here. And that's, you know, I, and I want him to meet you. And he goes, he'd always say to me, well, it's not time yet, not now, another time. You'll, when the time is right, he'd always say stuff like that. So every time I do the same thing. Well, this one particular dream um, I was inside a house that usually, like I said, we were always outside, you know, and we were inside a house. I can remember details like no tomorrow. Um, My dad and I were talking, and suddenly I, I said, you're not going yet, are you? He said, no, not yet. And I said, good, because Caesar's on his way. He'll be here any minute. And he goes, I know. My father said, I know. I will meet him today. Mom, I'd like to stop you there and we'll conclude our interview with you and the rest of the story that you've been sharing with us in the next couple of weeks. I thank you for taking the time today. Look forward to talking to you again. You're so special and what you've shared today I hope has touched somebody else the way it's touched me. But there's more to come. Find out more about Ray Carriger and Deb Lawback at mysticscribblers.com. Read the books in a twisted series. Listen to the rest of our podcasts. And be sure to take our past life questionnaire to find out if you've had past lives of your own.